Welcome to Balance of Power on 1039-1450 WKXL NHTalkRadio.com and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ken Kale, joined by our panel columnist and political analyst Alicia Preston, two-time U.S. Representative Paul Hodes, and former senior staffer and campaign manager Matt Robeson. More and more Facebook revelations are pouring out as whistleblower Francis Haugen shares internal documents with media organizations, and we're learning more about just how much Facebook fueled the January 6th insurrection. At the same time, Rolling Stone released an expose of just how deeply eight members of Congress were in detailed planning for the insurrection and shows that involvement could have gone inside the White House to the chief of staff. Is any of this new information going to change anything? And does it change how you see things, Alicia Preston? Let me start with Facebook and let me speak directly to my buddy, Mark Zuckerberg. Mark, I implore you to shut it all down. Just shut it down. You've made enough money that your great, great, great grandchildren will never, ever, ever have to work again if they don't want to. Your employees will find gainful employment because there's way more jobs than people to take them out there. And everyone's paying a lot of money and offering benefits for a far less stressful job. Shut it down. Put the genie back in the bottle. Look, I'm a capitalist, but Facebook monetized hate. And there has to be some culpability to that somewhere. It's it's a terrible thing what is reported that they've done and they're making money off the anger and hatred of others. And it's just wrong. And I think social media has doomed society and I'd love to see it just go away. As for the Rolling Stone piece about the eight congressmen, you know, I like to think, I like to think they didn't know how far it was going to go, but they just wanted people holding signs and rallying or protesting the good old fashioned way. I'd like to think they didn't think people would die that the, Congress, you know, our, our Capitol building would be taken over, that people wouldn't be chanting for Mike Pence to die or looking to kidnap people or break into the chambers. I'd like to think they didn't think any of that would happen. There's a disturbing part of that article, though, that notes how pardons were discussed for the organizers, which makes me think if they're discussing potential pardons from the White House, then they knew crimes were going to be committed. So it's a disturbing takeaway. One of the most ridiculous things in the piece, though, was stated by Marjorie Taylor Greene's uh, comms director, uh, Nick Dyer. And he said, uh, no one cares about January 6th when gas prices are skyrocketing, grocery store shelves are empty, unemployment is skyrocketing, et cetera, et cetera. He does a litany of all the bad stuff under Biden's administration. And I agree, there's a lot of bad stuff under Biden's administration. But the idea that no one cares about January 6th because of gas prices and grocery store shelves is is well offensive and wrong and you know unlike his boss uh i actually can have dual thoughts and emotions unlike his boss i live in reality and in reality it stinks that we've got inflation and that all these terrible things are happening in the country and that 13 members of our military died and it is terrible that there was an insurrection on january 6th by really bad people wanting to do really bad things so i think it's a telling article it's disturbing on many levels and i don't know what to take away from it beyond that paul should we pack up and go home at this point i don't oh. I, I can't possibly see us saying anything that would add to what Alicia just said. I think we should just wrap the show here. Hey, it's been great. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> yeah. How does it feel to be on your own? Yeah. There's no direction or home like a rolling I stone. promise Alicia Preston is not a sock puppet. Like she was speaking for herself there. 
<laughs> even though she was definitely channeling exactly what was in my brain too. That was. I'd that like was to think it's in most Americans' brains. Well, I just I'd want like, you to. I'd like to think that too, but I also I, I, like. I I have another view, and the and the other view is is expressed by my former president, President Donald J. Trump, who said that the real. The real insurrection was on election day and and January 6th was just a protest, just a protest. Well, thou doth protest too much. Um, actually, if you know, I think there's more, a lot more that we don't know, even with these recent revelations uh, about January 6th and the Rolling Stone article, which apparently came from two uh, women organizers of the I, I don't know what it was called women 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 trumpeters or the the women trumpet corps or whoever who golly didn't know a thing about it except as Alicia said pardons were already being discussed so somebody knew something was going to go down and uh, how far it reaches we'll find out does it change things? Yeah, it changes things. It's clear that there are people cooperating with the congressional committee who know things that the that we don't know and that we need to know. So, you know, the net keeps getting cast wider and wider. Bannon's been held in contempt. And uh, there you have it. And as for Facebook, no words can express the disgust and dismay with which this capitalistic monster has swallowed up our lives. And um, maybe the Justice Department can do something. Maybe antitrust can do something. Maybe somebody can do something. But clearly, Facebook and its and its um, managers have no conscience and uh, thus uh, regulation uh, by the government to protect people from their misdeeds is got to is got to happen. Your thoughts, Matt Robeson? Please follow Beyond Politics on Facebook. You can find us at Beyond Politics <laughs> Podcast. And actually, I believe it's Beyond Politics with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson. We're not excluding Alicia from this uh, on Facebook. It's a great follow. We uh, we have absolutely a lot of go to our Facebook page. We love absolutely. Facebook. Oh yeah, we use Facebook to market what we're doing all the time. All go the time. to Facebook, people. Actually, you know, I, I mean, it, it is a delicious point of irony that we talk a lot on this show and on other shows. I had th this great political science professor, E.J. Fagan, who a year ago wrote End the Algorithm. And if you want to hear a succinct explanation of what's really been going on with Facebook, just check out that show. It was it was two weeks ago in the Beyond Politics Facebook feed and podcast feed and you can you can get the full rundown of just how disastrous this is i'd like to go back to what alicia was saying that these eight republican members of congress claim that they didn't know it was going to be a violent insurrection interesting that's the fredo corleone uh defense i didn't know it was going to be a hit michael i just thought that these gunmen were going to show up and uh talk to you about how they like a change of direction in your crime family. Uh -huh. By the way, one of these eight uh, uh, priceless uh, works of art, Paul Gosar, a congressman from Mars or somewhere, um, was wearing body armor to the insurrection rally on the cap uh, 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 on the national mall he's wearing body armor because you know it's a peaceful tourist visit this is the same 
this is the same dip you know what who said oh it was a normal tourist visit he was wearing body armor. Well, normally tourists visiting Washington, D.C. wear body armor because you never know when the deep state is going to unleash and unload on them. Of course, it's they got to protect themselves. You remember when you were in Congress and we used to distribute AR-15s to all of our tour members? Of course, of course. And, 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 and we hid behind barbed wire everywhere we went. I, That's a tour I might have gone on. Well, actually, you know what? I did go on that tour. I used to work for a member of Congress who had an A-plus rating from the NRA, and I went to an NRA-run trap and skeet shooting exhibition and training, and I learned a a heck of a lot about shooting shotguns. True story, life is weird. Ken, your question was, is this going to change anything? Does anyone think this is going to change anything, all these revelations? No, No. I I don't. No. No. Okay. A simple no. All right. A new UNH poll finds Democratic Senator Maggie Hassan losing by three points in a head-to-head matchup against GOP Governor Chris Sununu and up by only five points over retired Brigadier General Donald Bolduck. So what do we make of uh, these statistics, Congressman Hodes? Congressman Hodes has frozen. He has gone into the <laughs> nether regions of the internet. And uh, that's that's technology out to get us. You know what happened? Mark Zuckerberg heard his comments five minutes ago. <laughs> and now he's really angry. Maybe we should he wheel it over to Alicia. All right, let's do that. Alicia? Yeah, I, I mean, look, polls are polls. We're very early out. A year is a lifetime away in politics. But it does say Maggie Hassan's in trouble. And here's why. Because we expect a dead heat. And I presume this is within the margin of error at three points. We expect a dead heat with the most popular governor in the country, um, Chris Sununu and Maggie Hassan. The Don Bolduck number is actually more telling. And why it's more telling is because despite the fact he's run before, he is not nearly as well known, nor nearly as popular as Chris Sununu, and yet he's within shooting distance of Maggie Hassan. So that number actually is more telling to me than the anticipated and expected dead heat between Chris Sununu and Maggie Hassan. I just hope the governor jumps in this race soon, uh, gets money starting to be raised because she's going to have a boatload of it, and the national parties are going to play very hard in New Hampshire this coming year. Is Congressman Hodes back with us? I'm back and I'm back. I'm back and I'm bad. Yeah. (laughs) So the, 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 you know, my take is remember Maggie Hassan won her first race by, I don't know, 1100 votes over Kelly Ayotte. I mean, that was a pretty slim margin and there was a lot of money invested in that race. This race is going to make that race look like the cheap seats. Um, Really. I mean, it's going to make it look like, you know, Costco versus Tiffany, um, because the, 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 all the, everybody's going to just be pouring money in. I think it's pretty good news for Maggie that she's only three points behind, uh, behind Sununu. I mean, I would, I, I expected something uh, far worse. The Bolduc number is a reflection of the power of the right. And who knows what that means at, at this point in terms of, in terms of uh, who is actually going to be voting. Um, the, the, the number that I looked at that I found troubling for Maggie was the favorability rating which was uh, low, really low, like how low, like really low, like basement low. And um, she, you know, I guess people feel that she hasn't done a lot or been very visible or they don't really know 
much about her or who knows what the favorability rating is about. Maybe it's just a general feeling about how people feel that the Senate is doing. And in that case, the favorability rating, if Maggie is is um, reflective of the Senate as a whole, I probably agree with it. Although I think Maggie's doing an, an, an okay job. It's going to be really expensive and um, it could get really nasty. Matt? It's a meaningless poll. Polls this far out are meaningless. And the UNH poll is, is very interesting the way they, they do things. This is a whole in the weeds discussion that we are not going to have. I'm not taking us down this road, but there, there are but, technical reasons why this particular poll is not really worth spending a lot of time on. And on top of that, there's a ton of research that shows that polls at this point are not predictive. Polls don't actually begin to become predictive at all until about 100 days out and not with any precision until about 60 to 30 days out. But, but, but Paul's right. I mean, if you're the, if you're the Hassan campaign, if you're Democrats, you're not unhappy about this. You're probably using this in your fundraising as you speak privately to donors, because the perception has been that Senator Hassan is up against this skyrocketingly popular Republican governor, Sununu, and, you know, she's only down three. And what's the context here? I mean, polling is so messed up to begin with, but consider the context here. You have Joe Biden at 43 points of approval rating, his lowest ever, within shouting distance of like the historically bad approval of Donald Trump. He's been on a horrible slide in the last two months, uh, just a bad run of news for Democrats and all the elected folks in Congress. Sununu has been one of the most popular governors in the country. And despite all that, she's only down three. I can tell you that at this stage in a rough cycle for Democrats 12 years ago, there are a lot of Senate candidates, I'm not going to name names, that would have liked to have only been down three for Democrats. So this this is kind of a sneaky good news story for Senator Hassan. Well, our very own Alicia Preston Xanthopoulos wrote an article for Seacoast Online on Friday about the case of a Yale law student. In September, the students sent out a party invita invitation that read, and I quote, Sup, Nelsa, that's the Native American Law Students Association. Hope you're all still feeling social. This Friday at 7.30, we will be christening our very own soon-to-be world-renowned Nalsa Trap House by throwing a Constitution Day bash in collaboration with the Federalist Society. Planned attractions include Popeye's chicken, basic B-word American-themed snacks like apple pie, etc. Hope to see you all there, end quote. Well, the administration at Yale called that message racist, discriminatory, triggering, offensive, anti-Black, anti-LGBT community, physically damaging and physically harmful. If you're confused by that, so was Alicia, and as are most of the rest of the world. Alicia, explain. So every single one of the words you just used to describe that this this email invitation was actually said in a 23 minute meeting 
where this student, Trent, was beckoned to administrators of Yale Law School, and that's how they described this uh, this email invite. Now, mind you, they received nine complaints, a whopping nine complaints about this that implied all these things. And it, I urge people to listen to it. There's apparently a second one from the following day I haven't listened to, but I listened to all 23 minutes. And let me tell you something. It's laughable as we're talking about it, but it was scary. I mean, the the pressure they were putting on this kid, what they were saying to him, Ruth Marcus, who's a liberal writer for The Washington Post, you know, in her opening line on this topic said, you know, the Maoists have nothing on Yale Law School. And she acknowledged she was exaggerating slightly, but said, but not really. I mean, <clears throat> They were pressuring him, pressuring him to write an email apology. And the kids smart. They were saying, you have to, if you don't know this. And they questioned, you know, his character when it came to the admission to the Bar Association. They've got his career in his education in their hands. And they're telling him because he did this email that all of it may be lost if he doesn't do it. And he said, well, you can't screenshot no response. I thought the guy's brilliant. I, I hope he stays around here as a lawyer if I ever need one. I'm going to call him. But I think moreover, guys, help me. Did anyone ever hear the term trap house before? Because apparently that is the point that set this all off. I have not heard that, except for there's a podcast with three white dudes on it called, what is it? Chop, Chopo Trap Chopo House. Chopo Trap House podcast. That is very, very popular among liberals. So yeah, they get 60,000 a month in subscriptions. So it's okay when liberals are doing it. But so to point out, this kid is a member of the Republican group on Yale Law School campus. And the party he was inviting people to was co-hosted by the Federalist Society, which is a conservative legal organization with tens of thousands of lawyers and members in this country. What this came down to is this kid was attacked, had his career and his future threatened, because he's conservative. And I think it's scary. It's I urge people to listen to it because it is the most disturbing thing. So a trap house, for those that don't know, apparently started as a place to buy drugs, then it morphed into a place to drink beer. And then over the years, it just colloquially became a party. So but apparently the Yale administration says it has connotations for poor black neighborhoods. I don't know where half of this came from. It was really weird. I also don't know why the LGBT community would be offended, nor immigrants, which were listed in there. But there's a lot to it. I urge people to listen to the tapes because it's really creepy. All oats. I have no idea about this. Okay. I mean, so, so one of the words that is apparently used in this message is be, uh, Blank, 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 blank. Right now. It, Are they it, referring to a female dog? Yes. I, I don't know. <laughs> no, no, no. Wait, I wait, think, for eating? Because that's the context. No, now context, I'm offended. In, now the con, I'm offended. in the context, in the context, I think it is has been taken to mean black, i.e. we're going to the food we're going to eat is 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 black that's what i think no 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 can't be because there's four dashes afterwards it's the female dog when the whole thing if you see it written out is the female dog word okay then i have no idea about this (laughs) except maybe the word sup as in what is up or what is happening or what is going on maybe sup is taken to be a condescending appropriation of minority speech i have no idea and you know what I don't really care. Our very own Matt Robeson penned an article in Newsweek that ran over the weekend entitled Trump 
is going to be the nominee in 2024. Why aren't we panicking yet? Reactions? I'm panicking. (laughs) Okay, I'm I'm panicking. Matt tells me to panic. I panic. Um, He tells me not to panic. I'm okay. I don't panic. He tells me to panic. I panic. So, 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 but I'm easily hysterical. I mean, you can, you can tell just by listening to me that I'm that kind of person. So Matt Robeson's scary article. I mean, it is, it's, 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 um, it's clear that it was designed as a Halloween type article. It is scarier than, than a trick-or-treater in a mask uh, and a costume. Um, it, it should frighten all Democrats um, who will read it, but most Democrats will read it and say, no, things can't be that bad. Our democracy isn't in that much peril. Those Republicans, why, why, why they, they, they ultimately care about the country. It'll be OK. Trump, he can't get elected again, can he? And of course not. He barely got elected the first time. He won't get elected this time. Um, Democrats are living in denial and delusion. And I know that those loyal Democrats out there listening to us will probably flog me on Facebook, Twitter, snitch snatch, and whatever else the social media is for being bad, for for being bad news bears about Democrats. But it's time to panic. Um, Matt suggests that the only thing we should be doing is protecting our democracy. So I agree with him. Get over this budget reconciliation negotiation, pass it, and then get about saving democracy. Alicia? My first reaction is congratulations to my friend, Matt. It is quite an accomplishment to get published in Newsweek, and I think that's very, very cool. So good for you. Um, I, I'm i not panicking even, well, I mean, I'm a Republican, so I guess I have a different purview, but I'm not convinced Trump's running. I'm just not. I mean, look, he's going to be 78. Why would he? I mean, if he loses again, and I know he perpetuates that he didn't lose, that it was fraud, and he can do that all over again, but you're going to lose people again with that. You're going to lose more. Right now, you know, he's a rock star to the people that supported him to the end. He will always be that rock star to them. They're not going anywhere. If there's another election, they may. They may go somewhere else because if he doesn't win, then at the end of the day, they're stuck with a Democrat as president and they don't want that. So I don't know why Trump would do it. I don't know why his family would want him to do it. I can't imagine Melania wants to be back in the White House. And again, he's going to be 78 years old. I just don't understand what he thinks he can get out of it because he can't know for sure he's going to win, which would be the only thing to revert his reputation. And there's no guarantee on that. We don't even know who the Democratic nominee is. So Three years is a long time away, but it's going to start kicking up in a year or two. And I'm just not convinced he's going to run. Matt Robeson. Well, uh, thank you, Alicia. And I, you know, the one, you make a fair point. It's possible that Trump doesn't want run. And, you know, my article is predicated on the possibility that he is going to run, the, the assumption that he is going to run. And maybe he doesn't. But what I find disturbing is that given all the ways that this would go bad if he does run, and in the article, I look at each of the possible outcomes and I show, I hope convincingly, why it would be really, really bad. 
given the amount of threat that that poses to the continuation of the United States of America as a country and the, the real possibility of widespread violence, it's an uncomfortably high likelihood and not something that we can really bank on the possibility that, you know, for example, Melania would get through to him and say, you know, I really don't want to do this again. So how about, how about restraining yourself, Don? And I, 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 I don't know that that's going to necessarily work on him. It's just, you know, it's, it's kind of as George W. Bush said in his not very convincing case for invading Iraq, why would we trust the judgment of a madman? And I'm not sure that I have any faith that Donald Trump will exercise good judgment here and not run. What I do feel very, very strongly about, and again, I hope people will check it out on Newsweek. Um, what I feel very strongly about is that if Trump runs, the threat is real. And it's not just me saying this. I, I In the article, I quote, the government scholar, Robert Kagan, who wrote a widely disseminated, widely read, long form article in the Washington Post a couple of weeks ago. And he said that the United States is heading into its greatest political and constitutional crisis since the Civil War with a reasonable chance over the next three to four years of incidents of mass violence, a breakdown of federal authority, and the division of the country into warring red and blue enclaves. With that level of threat ahead of us and not very far away, three years away, and the threat getting worse because of the kinds of laws being passed in legislatures right now that would allow the election outcome to be subverted, my argument is we need to be treating this as an absolute national emergency. And if Democrats are the only ones with the power, since they hold the power in Washington, to do something about this currently, and probably the only ones with any political will to do something about this, they need to focus on absolutely nothing else for the next year, and they need to get some fixes done. I do agree with you that if he runs, there could be some some really scary times ahead. If he runs and loses, I do agree with you that there will be some very, very dangerous times in this country. I mean, it, it happened this time around. January 6th happened, right? Um, it will be worse and it will be more widespread if he were to run and to lose. And it would be called fraud and they'd say election corruption and they'd say all these things, whether or not there's any evidence. And I think that would be a very dangerous, scary time for our country. Um, but I'm going to do what you guys sometimes make fun of me for, and I'm going to put on my rose-colored glasses and just presume that that scenario is not going to happen. Well, it's a good look for you. You, Thank you. you kind of look like Elton John. Um, <laughs> by the way, I don't want to give short shrift to your excellent article from Friday, the Seacoast Online article about the Yale Law student. I, I, I actually, I, I just want to circle back to that for one <laughs> second because I think, I think that I, I want to talk more to people. I, you know, I'm a Democrat. I want to talk to people who are more on my side of the political line about this, because there's a tendency, the political scientist, a, a, a Democrat, he's a, he's a liberal, Roy Teixeira, has been talking a great deal recently about what he calls the Fox News fallacy, which is this thinking among Democrats 
that if Fox News says that something is a problem, then it must be BS. <laughs> it must not be true if Fox News says it's bad. Well, of course, Fox News loves to talk about woke academic institutions going crazy on ridiculous stuff like this story at Yale. And so Democrats tend to dismiss it. They, it's the Fox News thing. It's like, well, they're saying it. There's nothing to it. It's, it's hysteria, blah, blah, blah. Cancel culture is not a thing. The problem is the plural of anecdote is data. And we have more and more and more anecdotes. This is a real thing. Netflix, for goodness sakes, did a whole really, really good series called The Chair about this that's sort of lampooning what's going on on college campuses, except it's very real. I live in a five college town and I talk to people who are part of institutions like this all the time. And, you know, quietly to me, they say, oh, this is, this is spot on. I mean, this is very, very real. And look, in my mind, there's a version of the conversation that the administration sought to have with this student that would be recognizable to reasonable people. It would be along the lines of, hey, young man, FYI, you inadvertently offended some of your classmates, probably not what you meant to do, but that's what was read into it. So could you please do everyone a favor? You don't want to have offended your classmates. They don't want to be mad at you. Could you just follow up with them, You know, put out a little statement, say what you meant, sorry, I offended anyone. Let's move on. Why don't you invite the people who were offended to come have a drink and some Popeye's fried chicken with you? And let's let's move on. There, there's sort of a sane version of this, but that's not what happened. And that's what we're seeing over and over again is that probably with nervous lawyers in their ear, administrators at educational institutions are having these ham-handed reactions time and time again. And it's not long before that whole Ruth Marcus point about like, this is beginning to seem like a Chinese cultural revolution struggle session that they want to put this kid through. It's not long before that becomes very, very real and very endemic. And it is something for liberals to be concerned about. That is not what liberals or Democrats or progressives should be standing for. Well, there's new research out, and it shows that, in general, conservatives are happier than liberals. What should we make of all that? Congressman Hose, are you unhappy? I am so happy. But that's because I'm a conservative progressive. Uh, it must be the conservative side of my progressive DNA that's causing all the happiness. I mean, you know, if I'm a conservative, I'm I'm happy. Uh, January 6th happened. That made me happy. President Trump is still alive. That makes me happy. He's planning on running for president. That makes me delirious. Um, uh, there are members of Congress who care enough about the country to help plot insurrection. That makes me really happy. Um, my party is continually refusing to govern. Uh, that makes me really happy because who wants to govern? That's just such a boring thing to do. Um, and, you know, all over the country, 
um, the Republican Party, uh, the, the conservative values of preventing women from controlling their bodies and their destiny is is taking shape in a in a wonderful way. That makes me happy. I, I mean, I, as a conservative, I have so much to be happy about. As a liberal or progressive, I'm I'm kind of down at the mouth. I mean, because all the all the Sturm und Drang and fire is on is what I hear from the right, and uh, that doesn't make me happy. So I guess I guess I'm I'm wearing a smile upside down that makes it a frown. Alicia, your take? Look, the Yale story is a perfect example of this, right? The, the conservative kid just wanted to have a party, have a good time, use some fun language. And the liberals in response wanted to complain about it. You know, you know what it is? It's like 80s and 90s music. Conservatives are 80s music. We're glam rock. We're hair bands. We just want to have a good time. Ain't looking for nothing but a good time. Right? We want to be happy. We want to smile. Our lyrics may be a little over the top. Our words may not make sense. But, you know, it's all good intended to get a smile out of somebody. Then you got the liberals. They're the 90s music, the Seattle grunge scene. It's when men started to talk about their feelings on stage. They sort of brood over things. You know, it was kind of a depressing Snag. era of music. Sensitive new age guy. But yeah, wait a yeah. second. I don't mean to interrupt, except you've just put in my brain a vision of Mitch McConnell in spandex <laughs> doing a doing I'm the sorry. Chuck Berry chicken walk across the uh, floor. Uh, of the isn't center. it more of a spinal tap <laughs> thing? Like we've got armadillos in our trousers. <laughs> oh, Mitch McConnell. Okay, May here's, Maybelline, a, here's a question. Why, why can't here's a you question be true? for the panel. May, Ma Maybelline, uh, 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 why can't you be true? <laughs> All right. Alicia Preston. Yes. Pop quiz under your uh, Republicans are from the 80s. Democrats are from the 90s uh, idea here. I, I just want to push you on this a little bit. You're a Republican. Okay. You're a conservative. You're happy, apparently. Always. So what 80s performer are you? What one am I? Yes. Belinda Carlisle. Belinda Carlisle. Oh. She's poppy. She's happy. She's always smiling. But my question is, is heaven truly a place on earth? It is when I'm here. <laughs> no. It is in my little bubble of earth. Oh, man. And, and I mean, Paul Hodes, what 90s grunge rock band is he? Yeah, right. I, I, I am definitely Kurt Cobain. I mean, come on. I mean, I am Kurt Cobain. If he was reincarnated in a geezer rock and roller, that would be me. Just look at my disappearing hairline. And, and you know, I mean, come on. I am Kurt Cobain, filled with grunge and despair. Uh, you know, I'm from, the, I'm from the rainy Northwest. It rains all the time. We're Democrats or musicians in the 90s. And uh, that's what we got going on here. It's raining all the time. All right, now here's the big one. Ken Kale. Oh, boy. Who are you? Who am I? Yeah, who are you? What You're 80s, 80s, man. You're what 80s, 80s man are you? The 80s, 80s, Ben? Yeah, I mean, I'm you have such a deep, commanding voice. Is it I'm, possible I'm, that you're Rick I'm, Astley? I'm, I'm probably I'm probably the Oak Ridge Boys. Okay. 
Matt, that All makes right. you the only and one. What about you? What, about, what about you, Robson? What what band mm. from the '90s? What artist from the '90s are you? I'm I'm a man out of time. I'm I'm like I'm like a deeply unpopular performer from the 1930s. I'm um, <laughs> I'm Paul Robson. I'm, I'm going to be exiled to uh, to Soviet Russia. I, I actually, um, Tiny Tim, tiptoeing through yeah, the tulips. That's right. Yes, I. I I, I'm nothing to be uh, to be proud of. Oh, you know, I, I, oh God, we, we really are going off the rails, and it's mostly my fault. I, I okay. I'm I'm going to be a little bit. I'm going to attempt. I met Tiny Tim. He came to my law office once upon a time. He <laughs> was looking cool. for representation, but it didn't. He chose somebody else. I can't figure out why. Ooh, Maybe he chose Mr. an '80s Paul. rocker instead. Oh, <laughs> Mr. Paul! Oh my God. Well, this this truly is um, the pits for uh, this show. Um, I, <laughs> I'm going to try. I'm going to try very hard. Uh, I'm going to be serious for a minute here. Right. I actually think that Ken's question kind of ties all of his other questions. Be real meta about this. All his other earlier questions on the show together here, in the sense that I I think it goes to show when you look at the research that Ken was alluding to, that conservatives are, are happier, liberals are less happy. And what you find is, you know, conservatives, they're, they're, they prefer stability, conformity, tradition, order, structure. If you're politically liberal, you are into creativity and curiosity and novelty seeking and new experiences and, you know, all that hippie crap. And the point is, we need both in our society. We need, we need both things to have a vibrant society. That's where actually America is awesome when we have a mixture of both things. And when we have only one or the other growing out of control without the forces of the other side to restrain it, it is bad. I, you know, I, I'm in a long running debate with a Republican friend of mine about whether the country is about to, like my article suggests, completely dissolve into two countries, which I call Trumpistan and Wokistan. Now, here's the thing. I don't want to live in either one. They both sound absolutely horrible to me. I don't want to live in Wokistan with this poor Yale law student going through struggle sessions with the Yale administration. I don't want to live in Trumpistan where the insurrectionists and Paul Gosar are wearing body armor to you know every family birthday party. It sounds horrible. We're much better off together. We need each other. And I don't think any of our listeners want to live in one of those two alternative realities either. Okay, that's it. That's my big serious pitch. I actually think you're right on your final point. I think if there was a proposed Trumpistan, let's say it's the East Coast and a Wokistan, that's a West Coast. You know where the huge majority of Americans are going to live? In the Midwest. Because most people don't want to be in either extreme. I, I, I completely agree. I mean, it, it's look, there's in, in the human body, when one area grows out of control, we call that cancer. And, you know, it's not, I think, going too far of a stretch to say that what we're seeing on the right with everything going on with the Trump movement is, is pretty cancerous. And I don't know that it's going too far to say that some of the excesses of woke progressivism I mean, listen to Bacha Ungar Sargon, who was on our show two weeks ago talking about 
how wokeness has overtaken the media and really distorted our understanding of what's happening in America. That is also a problem. You could argue that it's a bigger problem that we had the Trumpist insurrection under the Capitol. I mean, it injured 150 police officers, and killed four people, and nearly toppled 250 years of American democracy. So fake news didn't happen. Yeah, right. Exactly. But you know, the 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 woke media is not awesome either. Well, it, I don't know. I, I think I think most Americans agree on more things than we give them credit for. Uh, take Monday afternoon, for example. President Biden showed up in New Jersey at a very, uh, very much declining bridge that is a very busy bridge in New Jersey that needs serious attention. Uh, and this was in an effort, of course, to uh, build support for his $3.5 trillion infrastructure bill. But is there anyone in Washington or many in Washington that are opposed to that type of in- infrastructure that we really need to support our cities and, and the people in our cities? That kind of infrastructure, most people agree on. Most people say. agree on it, but they're holding legislation hostage because most people don't agree on the other trillions of dollars in the unrelated bill that they want to spend. So, you know, the monkey business in Washington needs to end so we can get to the stuff, because I agree with you, that we all agree on. Well, first of all, apparently Biden, as part of that visit, also inadvertently broke a little infrastructure setup that an eight-year-old had made. And he's (gasps) like, oh, my bad. I guess I ruined your infrastructure project, which is like, talk about talk about an unintentional comedy moment. Um, (laughs) Yes, maybe that extends more broadly. Uh, But look, you know, one of the points Paul and I had on our show today, I urge people to check out on Beyond Politics, a a real hero behind the scenes of everything that's that's going on, that's been passed in a positive way in Washington. The chair of the budget committee in Congress, an awfully powerful guy named John Yarmouth, an old friend of Paul's from your days together. We had a really awesome show. It's It's been shouted out in playbook today. So just check out the Beyond Politics podcast feed for that. But one of the points that Congressman Yarmouth made is that it's kind of become hard to have a reasonable conversation about things that people agree on, like Ken, you were just laying out. And he gave some really good examples of this. It's like, we're trying to talk about the minimum wage. Progressives are saying it's got to be $15 an hour. And more moderate Democrats are saying, well, what if we what if we hit a point a little lower than that? And you turn to the Republicans and it's like, what do you guys think? What do, what do you want to do? And they say, nothing. We don't want to talk to you. We, we, we think it's all fake news. You know, go Trump. And it's like, you can't even have a discussion. I mean, Alicia, you know, to your point a moment ago, I don't think it's really the case that no one agrees on some of the investment plans in the Build Back Better bill. I think people actually agree with many of the pieces of it. They agree on the childcare piece. They agree on the importance of kindergarten. They agree on covering people's health care so that no one has to go without health care. There may be some different ideas, but there's not a debate between Republicans and Democrats about those policies and those ideas. So the debate is left to only be among Democrats. And that was the point that Congressman Yarmouth was making. What's 
what's a happy, sad clown to do in this political environment? I want to be happy. Does that mean I have to be conservative to be happy? Wait, Can are I you be- the happy, sad clown? Well, I don't know. That's what I'm trying. I'm going to clown school because I, I I would rather be a happy progressive, but but it just looks so much easier to be really happy when you've gummed up the works the way the Republicans have. Well, can I, I can't say? wait. I can't wait to see you in that makeup, Paul. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> Every Tears day of a clown. Tears of a clown, yes. That's going to do it for this edition of Balance of Power. For Alicia Preston, Congressman Paul Hodes, and Matt Robeson, I'm Ken Kale. Join us next time for Balance of Power. 